Please turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you have fasted, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. At a recent session meeting, one of our elders uh, shared with the rest of the elders that he had been doing some study on fasting and raised the issue that we as a church body had not talked about fasting in recent memory. And he felt that this is something that the church ought to occasionally look at as an important part of discipleship. And so, as Owen mentioned earlier, I am going to be preaching on fasting, primarily looking at it from the Old Testament saints' perspective. And then next Sunday, Owen will be leading us through a study of fasting from a New Testament perspective. Fasting is undoubtedly the most neglected and most misunderstood among the spiritual disciplines for a believer in Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of it? Why do we do it? What are we trying to achieve when we set about to fast? What makes it more confusing is that so many Non-Christians fast. Matter of fact, fasting is a common practice in most of the world religions. Of course, in the other world religions, when you look at their list of duties, they fast in order to earn favor with God at some level. That's not why we are to fast. It's also, interestingly, advocated by a lot of non-religious people. 
People will say it's good to fast for health reasons or for mental health reasons. Or some, many, non-religious people will fast, so to speak, in order to make a social protest or a political protest. Just a couple of days ago, I saw an article about a professional soccer team in, in India and they had been excluded from the premier league of the best teams in the country, and they felt that that was a great injustice, and so they had committed themselves, in their words, to fast unto death until the powers that be changed the decision. Made me ask myself the question, is, is that what fasting is? Is, that, is it really a hunger strike to get God to do your will? I think, unfortunately, sometimes we look at it that way. If we really want something and we fast faithfully, then God is obligated to, to do what we ask for, isn't he? Is it really a hunger strike? We see people fasting both inside and outside the church, and so often it's ritualistic or legalistic. And so what do we do? We throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. We say, well, fasting, I don't understand it. People use it so badly. I'm just going to avoid it completely. Just because somebody uses something in a way in which it's not intended doesn't mean it's not very, very useful. I once saw a guy open a beer bottle with a chainsaw. Doesn't mean that a chainsaw doesn't have a very good purpose in other settings when it's used the way that's intended. That's the way fasting is. Fasting is intended to be a very good thing in the life of a believer. And just because other people use it the wrong way doesn't mean that we should throw it out. In scripture, it's pretty impressive to look at the list of people who fasted as a regular part, or at least an occasional part, of their spiritual lives. Moses fasted. David fasted. Nehemiah fasted. The prophets fasted and called upon God's people to fast. Jesus fasted and he said that his followers would fast and we know that the early church fasted several times during the book of what's recorded in the book of Acts and Paul said that he fasted often so who are you and I to say that fasting isn't important to our spiritual life who are you and I to just throw that out and say we don't need it Zechariah chapter 7 seems like maybe an odd chapter to pull out of the Old Testament, probably an unfamiliar chapter to most of us. But it's interesting, what happens in, the, in, in Zechariah chapter 7 is you have a question come from the common people in the nation of Israel, the Old Testament church. They come to the leaders of God's people and they ask them about fasting. Should they fast? They've been fasting. Should they continue to fast? And that question helps us to look at the core of why you and I should be fasting. The period of history we're talking about is the time after the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. Remember that the people of God had turned their backs on God. They had given themselves over to idolatry. They'd given themselves over to sin. And so God was patient with them, he sent prophets, but finally when the cup of iniquity was full, he sent judgment, and he sent the Babylonians to destroy Israel, to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy the temple, and to have his people carried away as captives to a foreign land, the land of Babylon. 
So what's happened here is that 70 years that had been predicted for that captivity were over. And Cyrus had sent the people of God back. And you had waves of people, former captives, coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild Israel, and to rebuild the temple. It's in that context, they've been back for a few years, that a group of people from Bethel, which is a small town about 12 miles north of Jerusalem, they sent a delegation from that town down to the priests and the prophets, and of course Zechariah was one of those prophets, Haggai was another, sent a delegation down to ask the leadership of God's people to say, we've been fasting during these past 70 years, should we continue? Exactly the wording is in verse 3. Should I, this, the, the leader of the delegation says, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now what's interesting, if you do do a study of fasting in the Old Testament, you find out that the, the law, the law of God in the Pentateuch, the law given through Moses, only dictates one day of fasting a year for the Jews. That doesn't mean that that was the only day they were to fast, but that was the one that was required, and that was the day of atonement. But these fasts, and actually over in chapter 8, we find out that they're actually referring to a series of four different fasts that the people of God had willingly taken upon themselves during the Babylonian captivity. In chapter 8, verse 19, it talks about fasting that they were doing on the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth months. What's interesting, if you look at the months that are referred to as those four fasts, they correspond to four tragic events that happened during the fall of Jerusalem and the carrying away of people to captivity. So these were fasts that the people had taken upon themselves voluntarily in response to God's judgment against the nation. And the fifth month is the one that's being referred to here particularly by this delegation. Do we need to still continue to fast during the fifth month? Go back to the fall of Jerusalem, what happened in the fifth month of the year? The destruction of the temple. So what they're saying is, because the temple was already halfway to being rebuilt at this point, at, when the delegation comes, they were, the end of, was in sight of their building project to get the temple rebuilt. You can understand, it's a legitimate question, an understandable question. God's judgment had brought about destruction and captivity, but he's restored us. We're back in the promised land. Jerusalem's being rebuilt. The temple's being rebuilt. Do we need to fast anymore? Can we quit fasting now? Is really what they're asking since the Lord has brought us back and the temple is almost restored. I'm sure that they were, they were expecting a simple yes or no answer to the question. Yes, keep fasting or no, don't. But as the Lord is wont to do, he doesn't answer their question. Have you ever noticed that? You ask the Lord a question like this, he doesn't answer the question in your mouth. He answers the issue of the heart. And so they don't get a yes or no question. What they get is a rebuke. He's saying to them, that stuff, that, those activities you were calling fasting, those weren't really acceptable to me anyway. Let's talk about what real fasting is. And through the Lord's rebuke, I think we can easily see the answer to the question, why should we fast? Why should you fast in the 21st century? Why should you fast in your life situation? The first answer to that question, as we see from the Lord's rebuke, is that fasting is a means by which 
we seek God. Fasting is a means by which our hunger for God is expressed. That's why it's important. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord says to these people, he says, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? What a pointed question. Of course, the quick answer would have been, yes, sure, we did it for you, Lord. But he's going to the heart. He's saying, did you really do it for me? Did you fast for me? And then he compares it to when they feast in life, when they would have a big banquet and eat lots of food and drink lots of drink. He says, when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? You hear what he's saying? He's saying, you fasted for the same reason that you feasted. It's all about you. It's all about a self-centered worldview. What can I get out of it? In the flesh. You see, what the Lord is saying here is that their fasting, their practice of fasting, was self-centered, not God-centered. He's saying that their fasting wasn't any more for his glory than their feasting was for his glory. Let me correct a potential wrong way of thinking here. The Lord is not saying that we fast for his benefit. We can't do anything to add anything to God. We don't pray to give something to God that he needs. We don't worship to give something to God that he needs. We don't fast in order to give God something that he needs. God doesn't need anything. He's God. So there is a sense in which we pray and worship and read scripture and fast for ourselves to gain something for ourselves. The question is, what are we wanting to gain? And too often, we do religious practices in order to gain from other people and to gain earthly reputation and to gain some sense of self-righteousness or self-justification. And what God is saying to the people of God in that day is, if you're going to fast, it needs to be an expression of your need for me. What are you looking for when you fast, you pray, you worship, you read scripture? It should be an expression of a hunger for God. That's the legitimate heart attitude that honors the Lord in our fasting. And it's the heart attitude that the Lord responds to with blessing. The benefit that we seek in our fasting, like any other religious practice, must be God himself, not something in this world, certainly not something about ourselves. True fasting is a means of strengthening our hunger for God. I mean, think about it. What do you love more, food or God? What do you need more in life, food or God? Fasting makes us wrestle with that question at the very core of who we are. And it's very easy for God's gifts to get in the way of our relationship with God. Remember Jesus, he told the parable of the sower. And the seed, which the sower uh, distributed, the seed represented the word of God. Remember he talked about seed that fell among the thorns. Do you remember what he said those thorns represented? To quote him exactly, he said the thorns represented the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Good things 
the responsibilities and concerns and riches and pleasures of this life. Good gifts from God that have choked out the work of the word of God in our heart, in our mind, in our life. Remember Jesus told a story in Luke 14 about a man who invited his friends to a banquet, but they didn't come. They turned down the invitation. You remember why they turned down the invitation? Turned it down for good things. One turned it down because he just bought a field. Another turned it down because he had just bought some oxen, had some new oxen. Another one turned it down because he'd just been married. He had a new wife. All good things, all gifts from God, they kept him from the feast. Fasting is giving up God's good gift to us so that we can be sure that we love the giver more than we love his gifts. Fasting is a heart check for idolatry because that's what idolatry is. When you love a gift of God more than you love the God who gave it. And this leads to a question I sometimes get, is it legitimate to fast from other things besides food? Other things that have gotten in the way in our lives, things that, gifts of God that, that are good things in and of themselves, but they distract us from God. Is it legitimate to fast from those things? And my quick answer is, yes, it's legitimate, but don't let it take the place of fasting from food. It is true that it is good for our souls sometimes to fast from social media, to fast from the internet in general, to fast from your iPhone, to fast from sports. All these things are good things, gifts from God, gifts from God that can fill your soul temporarily so that you don't hunger for God as you should. And so it is legitimate to set those things aside. But I wouldn't say it's the primary sense in which scripture talks about fasting. And I wrestled with this a bit this week. That fasting in scripture is always setting aside God's good gift of food. And I wondered why. And the answer I came to, and you feel free to challenge me on this because I don't have chapter and verse to point to, to 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 give a final answer on it, but I think it's because food is absolutely necessary, whereas all these other things aren't. Food, to set aside food as a gift from God is to set aside something you absolutely physically, legitimately, objectively need to live. Whereas you can set aside your iPhone for 24 hours. You could probably do that relatively painlessly. You can set aside the internet. You can set aside TV. You can set aside all these things and it doesn't really hurt that much. But you set aside food for 24 hours, it hurts. You need that food. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He did not say, I am the iPhone of life. And there is a difference between bread and iPhones. So I think that there is a core reason why scripture always talks about food when he talks about fasting. Because even as essential as bread is to our lives, the Lord is more essential to our lives. That's what fasting says. The hunger pains that you feel while you're fasting are meant to remind you how desperately you need God. 
The hunger pains that you feel when you fast are meant to drive you to your knees to pray. To say, God, just like we said so many times already in the service, I need you. Next time you fast, my recommendation to you is to take Psalm 63 and read it. Read it again. Read it all day long. Study it. Because Psalm 63, which is written by David, is such a clear expression of the heart behind genuine fasting. Let me read it to you. This is the heart of David that led him to fast, to pray, to worship, to do anything for God. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. That's the heart attitude of fasting. That's why fasting and prayer always go together. Because fasting is what drives us to cry out to God for mercy, for filling, for satisfaction. Because he's the only one who can ultimately do that. The need for food drives us to God who is the giver of food and all good gifts. Now, having said that, I do want to make the qualification. I know for some of you, abstaining from food for any significant amount of time could be dangerous to your health. And so there is a legitimate sense in which you need to modify fasting in your case. But I would encourage you to figure out a way in which you can experience that type of fasting as well as any other type of fasting that you can do. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be filled. And that's the heart attitude of fasting. It says, Lord, I am poor in spirit and I look to you and you alone to fill me and satisfy me. And the beautiful thing about fasting is, is it puts everything into right perspective in your life. When you set aside the good things that God has given to you in life, and you set aside even food itself, which is needed to sustain your life, and you say to God, God, you are the source of all the good gifts in my life. You are the one who satisfies me more than anything else. You know what he does? He gives you back his good gifts in a whole new light, and you enjoy them like you've never enjoyed them before. Because God wants to shower us with good gifts. He wants us to enjoy good food, but he wants us to do it to his glory. And fasting teaches us to do that. When I break my fast with a breakfast the day after a fast, literally break the fast with a breakfast, that breakfast is some of the best food I've ever tasted in my life. You know, eggs, pancakes, bacon, never tasted as good as it, as it does after you, not just because you physically need it so much the day after a fast, but because your heart's been changed. And you're enjoying it to God's glory. You recognize this as God's provision in a way that you take that for granted on every normal day of the week. And you enjoy his gifts more. That's the beauty of fasting. Is that when you refuse to make his gifts idols, 
He makes them more precious as gifts. That brings us to the second point. Because, you know, sometimes people say, well, I'm going to fast. I'm going to give up pornography. That's not fasting. Fasting is giving up God's good gifts. Fasting is not giving up sin. But fasting is a way to prepare yourself to give up sin. Fasting is a way to prepare yourself to do battle against sin, to see sin for for all the ugliness that it really is, and to turn away from it. So that's the second point, is that fasting is a means to turning away from sin. Fasting is often, a vast majority of the time, when it talks about fasting in Scripture, it's connected to sin, either your sin or the sin of God's people. Somehow it's, turned, it's, it's related to turning away from sin. And that's what you see down in verses 9 and 10. Here's where the Lord's rebuke gets very pointed. These people say, we've been fasting all these years faithfully, for all these four months, we do our fasting faithfully. He says, but look at your lives. What effect has it had upon your lives? And look, listen to what he says in verses 9 and 10. Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. He's saying, if you had been truly fasting in the right state of heart and mind, then your life would not look the way it does. You would not be neglecting the poor and the needy around you. You would not be devising evil against one another. True fasting leads to repentance. But again, don't misunderstand me. Fasting is not penance. Fasting is not a way that you pay for the sins you've committed. Fasting is not a way to show God how much he should forgive you. Fasting is not about a show of your willpower to try to earn yourself back into the right graces of God. Fasting isn't a way to get your act together or to control your sinful tendencies. You see, that's what pagan fasting is. Jesus talked, or Paul, the Apostle Paul, talked about that kind of fasting and condemned it in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. This is what he says. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." If you're in a battle with sin, don't fast in order to try to gain control of that sin. Paul says it's worthless as a tool to fight sin without the grace of the gospel. Fasting is never an act of our own willpower. Fasting is a cry to God for help. That's what fasting is. It's a cry to God to change your heart, to have mercy upon you, to deliver you from sin and its power to fill your heart with himself instead of this sin that so desperately longs to wrap its fingers around you. What's even worse though, it seems to be, is what these Old Testament believers, professing believers, were doing in their fasting. They weren't even using it to fight against sin. They were using it as a 
disguise for sin, as a cover for sin. They were continuing to live in their sinful lives, but fasting faithfully while continuing to live in sin. And there are many in the church who will do religious exercises the same way. Where we fast or we pray or we go to church in order to look good on the surface while yet still under the surface, clinging and holding on to our sin. And the prophets of the Old Testament condemned that kind of fasting over and over again. In Isaiah chapter 58, the Lord quotes the people challenging him for ignoring their fasting. This is what he, how he quotes them in Isaiah 58 verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They're saying, God, we're doing what, what we're supposed to do. We're, we're performing all these outward rituals and yet you're ignoring us. You're not giving us what we want. That's hunger strike. That's trying to force somebody to do your will by your acts of willpower. And so the Lord answers through the prophet Isaiah, beginning in verse 6, Is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see him naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then when you call... And the Lord will answer, and you shall cry, and he will say, here I am. You see, true fasting leads to repentance. Not because of anything that we're doing, but because the Lord is honored by that poverty of spirit, that openness, that cry for mercy. Remember, Jesus talked about two men that stood in the temple praying, and one of them prayed mostly to men, not to God, and boasted about the fact that he fasted twice a week. But the other man was on his face saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus said, which one of these men went home justified right with God? It was the man who cried out, have mercy upon me. And Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting. Notice how the two go together. Returning to God with the heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. If fasting is acknowledging your absolute need of God, your emptiness before him, and an attempt to receive what only he can give as the giver of all good gifts, then, if that's your heart attitude, it will re lead to repentance. Because that's the actual, that's what faith is. Faith is saying, Lord, I need you. And when you say that to the Lord, his response to your faith is to grant you the gift of repentance. So repentance follows fasting. Which leads to the last point. Fasting softens our hearts. That's what you need more than anything else in your life right now. You need a softer heart. Sin hardens your heart. And the more you turn your back on God, the harder your heart gets. The cure for a hardened heart is to cry out to God for mercy. And fasting is a means, a very effective means by which you can do that. In verse 12, there it says, The Lord reminds them of the effect 
that the religious sinning, this ongoing sin and trying to cover it over with religious activity on the part of their, his, their ancestors, he says this is what happened. It says, they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard. Doesn't get much harder than that. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. They came under judgment not only because they sinned persistently against God, but because they, in their sin, instead of turning to God and seeking a softened heart, they turned a shoulder against God like a, a stubborn animal, and they they by their own willfulness made their hearts hard before him so that he would not hear. That they could not hear him and he would not hear them. You see, that's the result of self-centered fasting because it leads to self-justification and justification can only come through Christ and his work on the cross. This is why religious people who don't really trust in Christ are the hardest people to share the gospel with. Because they do all these religious things. They may fast, they pray, they read their Bibles, they go to church. But in their heart, they're hard. And they're the hardest people, often, to get to realize they need the gospel. They need Christ. Fasting, at its very core. Remember what Paul said? Paul expressed, again, like David, Paul expressed the heart of fasting when he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, God has a purpose in the wilderness periods of our lives. Sometimes he forces you into the wilderness, like he did to Israelites. Sometimes... God's people willingly go into the wilderness to meet with God, like Jesus did. But God uses those wilderness experiences to soften our hearts, to open our ears, to enable us to receive grace. And listen to how God describes the reason why he led the Israelites into the wilderness in the days of Moses. Listen to how he describes his purpose in that. He says, the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's the purpose of fasting. Fasting is putting yourself in the wilderness, setting aside the gift from God that you need most, food, so that you can feel the barrenness of your soul. You can feel your need of God and refuse to go to bread or anything else to meet that need, but to go to him alone to fill you, to strengthen you, to prepare you for whatever he has in store for you. Fasting will either draw you nearer to God or it will harden your heart and drive you farther away. It will not leave you unchanged, depending on the state of your heart. We live in an extremely wealthy, comfortable, overindulgent, and gluttonous age. 
You live in a culture that is more that way than any other culture, I believe, that this planet has ever seen. And yet, we fast so little. How can that be? How can it be that we fast less in a time when the temptation to idolatry and indulgence in the flesh is so strong? John Piper says in his book, he wrote a book on fasting called A Hunger for God. In that book, he says, the absence of fasting is indicative of our comfort with the way things are. No one fasts to express how content they are. The absence of fasting is the measure of our contentment with the absence of Christ. Fasting is the means, a means, by which we say to God, I need you. It's very easy to stand here in your comfort and prosperity and sing out loud, I need you, Lord, I need you, Lord, I need you, Lord. But when you're fasting, then you decide, is this really coming from the heart or am I just mouthing the words? Fasting is a means by which we express our need for God, our hunger for God. Owen next week is going to be looking at fasting from the New Testament. And we will see that there is a change in the way that we look at fasting. We don't stop fasting under the New Covenant, but we see it in a different light because so much revelation about grace has been given to us in the New Covenant. We know about Christ. We know about the means of redemption. We are indwelt by the Spirit in a much deeper way, but we need God just as much and there is still so much of our salvation yet to come last week we said we should start every morning and end every day with a prayer Maranatha which means oh Lord come oh Lord come that's the longing that drives us to fast and pray and seek the satisfaction that only God can give let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you for these means that you have given us by which we can draw near to you. Lord, you have done everything necessary for us to know you, to live with you for eternity through our crucified and risen Christ. But Lord, we still have so much sin lurking in our lives. We still look to the things of this world to satisfy our deepest needs. Father, I pray that this passage of scripture would cause us to reflect upon our need for you and how only Christ can fill it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.